0: This week's podcast is sponsored by Destinations Career Academy, powered by K-12. Destinations serves school districts with flexible CTE solutions to get students future ready for a changing job market, providing career exploration, real-world experience, and certifications prep. Learn more at destinationsacademy.com school hyphen districts. That's destinationsacademy.com school hyphen districts. Hello and welcome to the EdSearch Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, and today we're talking about the moment in class discussions when things get real, and sometimes not in a good way. It, I'm talking about when communication breaks down um, around controversial topics in classrooms or, or on the broader campus, and it's, it's actually something that my colleague Becky is not afraid to dive into. Hey, Becky.
1: Hi, Jeff. Well, I've been talking with folks who are thinking about designing better classroom discussions on these tough topics, while also avoiding those moments where people just shut down or erupt.
0: Yeah, and it seems like there's an art to it, um, from, what, from what your reporting shows. I mean, it's probably, for instance, not a good idea to just get a bunch of college students in a room and say, like, go talk about race. For
1: sure. Uh, And to your point, one student I spoke with, Alex Backus, remembers a time in a class he took that was not ideal.
2: And then we all kind of got out of control and started like arguing like, well, why can't it be different than what the historians say? Like, why, why are the historians like the end all be all of like what the reasoning is? And so we got into like a huge argument about what we all believed. And then we all kind of left it really heated. Like we didn't come to a conclusion at all. We kind of just ran out of time and left.
0: Yeah, I, f- I feel like I remember classes, sessions going something like that. Maybe not exactly as he describes it, but something where you're just like, wow, how did we get here? Um, and that student was at the University of Michigan, where I guess they have a course, um, not the one he was talking about, but a more intentional one where they, where they actually try to use classroom discussion more productively.
1: That's right. Michigan offers semester-long courses called Intergroup Dialogues on topics that tend to provoke strong feelings, including class, sexual orientation, and racial identity. And they're led by peer facilitators um, and they're designed to help students who come from different backgrounds explore sensitive ideas together in ways that both respect, but also challenge their personal perspectives. The goal is that by the end, students have built new relationships and better understand each other's points of view. One big advocate for the program is Kelly Maxwell, who's the Assistant Dean for Undergraduate Education at the University of Michigan. And she's also our main guest on the podcast today.
0: Yeah, and Becky, you, you sat down with her and had this kind of dialogue that was really interesting. Um, so I'm just going to get out of the way and let you two take it from here.
1: Thanks. Maxwell's also the board chair of the Difficult Dialogues National Resources Center, a nonprofit that supports dialogue work in higher education. When I sat down with her recently, uh, I started off by asking her how she defines dialogue as opposed to some other kind of class discussion.
3: Dialogue it really is about greater understanding. So it's bringing people together that have differing views on particular issues, social is- social issues often, um, maybe they have different identity backgrounds, uh, seeking to understand one another Um in a more nuanced way, or maybe they've never even talked with someone who has a differing opinion or perspective or experience, life experiences. And so dialogue really brings those folks together um, to learn to listen, uh, learn to speak one's truth, um, and feel empowered to be listened to, uh, because sometimes, especially if one has a marginalized voice... Um, they've never had an opportunity to actually be listened to. So dialogue is about empowering those voices. It's about listening and building empathy for experiences that may be very different from one's own, Um, and really then seeking to understand where that perspective comes from. Um, So oftentimes in dialogues on college campuses, there's really a balance then between content, because if dialogue is, is happening in a classroom, of course there's content in the classroom, but then there's a, the process of dialogue. So very intentionally bringing people together with some information, with some content, um, but then also allowing them to share their own experiences vis-a-vis the content, um, and and then kind of opening... Uh, the thinking around whatever the complex issue is. Oftentimes, especially younger students, come with a very dualistic framework. It's either this or it's this. Dialogues helps uncover the complexity of a variety of issues. Um, There's a lot of emotion in dialogue too, which is a little bit different than a typical college classroom. So it's connecting the... um, the intellectual or the cognitive with that affective um, emotion, uh, so that people learn that there are, you know, real stories behind
1: some of the hot topics of the day. And <clears throat> does dialogue happen naturally and organically, or have you found it's something? that needs to be taught and practiced in order to actually occur. Yeah,
3: I I really believe in the latter, that it really takes intention and um, faculty and staff have to find purposeful ways of engaging students in particular in dialogue. So um, we talk about all kinds of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And just because you have a diverse student body at any given institution doesn't mean that those students are interacting together. And in fact, um, we know that not just students, but in society, we tend to hang around and live in neighborhoods um, that look like us or have very similar backgrounds uh, like us. Um, our social media feeds often are um, reinforcing the beliefs that we already have. And so dialogue has to be intentional to bring people together. You don't just say, hey, we're going to have a dialogue about this you know, controversial topic. We hope people from all sides will come and then we see what happens. That is a recipe for disaster mm. and, and very non-dialogic practice, often more uh, replicating debate where people are just trying to get their, you know, side heard and and win an argument. Um, you know, you really have to set up the space both physically um, so that it's welcoming for people, but also space meaning what's going to happen in the room. So um, setting guidelines or or Um, beginning with some kind of norm setting of how are we going to talk together? How are we going to listen together? Recognizing that in a dialogue setting, there probably isn't going to be resolution. The goal is really to hear each other deeply, um, really listen and share one's own perspective and understand your own perspective better through the process, but then also, of course, understand others And hopefully build some empathy
1: along the way. I'd love to hear more about that class Mm, in particular. How does it work? Yeah. Uh, Is it for credit? Is there Mm -hmm. a professor? Uh, So it's a two credit hour course
3: that again brings students together across different identities. So for example in a uh, race and ethnicity dialogue there are um, roughly equal numbers of students of color and white students in the dialogue space and uh, we train undergraduate peer facilitators to be in the dialogue space as facilitators. So there is not a uh, faculty member in the classroom every week. Uh, They start and end the semester with a faculty member and then uh, a faculty member will observe. um, They're really observing the the facilitators to coach and and supervise them. Um, And we really believe that peer facilitation allows students to kind of ask that question that they really wanted to ask. Or sometimes students um, you know, don't want to make a mistake in a classroom setting. So the peer leaders help to reinforce that it's OK here, that we're creating a space that is um, you know, student friendly and uh, very much about the learning of the people in the room. And so it is across the, the arc of a full semester. There's four stages to the dialogue process Um, First is group beginnings. So instead of digging right into the the hot topic of the day, it's really spending the first couple of weeks really getting to know one another, um, doing something called sharing testimonials where students, every student in the room tells their story related to the identity of focus in the dialogue. Um, Then they do some um, learning through experiential exercises around social identities discrimination, privilege, power, that kind of thing. And then they really get into the hot topics um, that they choose um, based on the conversations that have been happening so far. And then they really are um, in the dialogue process and then finally wrap up with, what what has this meant for me? Let let me reflect on this um, collectively. What action do we want to take or individually um, if any, you know, uh, so it's kind of a wrap up at the end. And it, are
1: there texts associated with it or is it really all interpersonal conversation? No,
3: it's uh, there are readings every okay. week um, as well as written writing reflection every week. Uh, there's a group project where members, uh, obviously a smaller group of three to four students are um, intentionally uh put in a, a diverse group and then they uh, plan a project and implement it together. And then a final paper at the end. Okay, so yeah. there's a oh, lot it's, of work. It's, it's definitely a class. It's definitely a class, but it's a very different kind of class because it's centered on active learning and experiential exercises and then of course
1: dialogue. After the break, we talked to a student who went through this dialogue course. And we'll hear how professors can lean into these difficult conversations in their classrooms, but in a really effective way, even during a polarized election season. Stay with us.
0: This week's podcast is sponsored by Destinations Career Academy, powered by K-12. I asked Mike Dardaris, Senior Director of Career Readiness Education at K-12, why professional skills are so important in a changing job market.
4: Those soft skills that we used to call them, we call them professional skills now because there's so much more than just being, you know, it's like a soft thing, uh, are the, the key to success. You know, as simple as knowing how to disagree and, and having a productive disagreement, knowing how to ask for help and when to take initiative. These are things that employers, and we're not talking, you know, just little mom and pop shops, which we get great information from, but we're also talking about multinational, um, huge corporations are saying, showing up to work on time, understanding how to collaborate and to solve problems, how to communicate and how to lead and how to follow also. Those are you know monumental skills that we take for granted, but not really figured out how to deliberately teach. And when it comes to deliberately teaching, if it doesn't take the first time or stick, how do you have an intervention for that? So if a student's not good at collaborating, You can't just say, you're not a good collaborator. You have to pinpoint the areas for improvement and then reteach that strategy.
1: These are teachable skills.
0: Thanks again to Destinations Career Academy and K-12 for their support. Now back to the episode.
1: We wanted to get the student perspective on what this dialogue course feels like. So I went back to Alex, the student we quoted at the top of the episode. Alex took a dialogue-based course about race at the University of Michigan. And he's currently facilitating a different dialogue uh, for high school students. The first reality check he offered was that not everyone in the class he took as a student bought into the model.
2: A lot of people weren't as invested into the class as i had actually hoped they would be. Uh, it So we didn't lead to a lot of the better conversations I had hoped for. But we did get a lot of good ideas. Uh, our facilitators brought in a lot of different ideas that we'd never thought of, a lot of uh really cool articles and videos and TED Talks and stuff like that. So there was a lot of good content that came out of it, but I don't know if there was as much good discussion as I had hoped for. Even so,
1: he ended up taking those facilitation techniques back into the real world, like Thanksgiving dinners with family.
2: Uh, Whenever I go back home and any kind of hot topic comes up of any sort, I always make sure to try to follow the dialogue steps that I've learned and kind of go through those with my family and make sure that everyone is feeling like they're allowed to share, like it's a brave space to share and that we're all going to respect each other at the end of the day. Uh, That's kind of one way I always try to do it. I try to like make sure all family arguments end civilly.
1: I wondered whether dialogue techniques might also have something to contribute to so-called free speech debates that happen when controversial speakers or protest movements come to campuses. So I asked Maxwell her advice on how campuses can respond when a controversial speaker is announced. Um, I think in the
3: moment, you know, when the controversial speaker is on campus, again, not really a great time for true dialogue, but I think what can come out of it is um, to invite people from many perspectives to the table, maybe some that supported the speaker, some that uh, opposed the speaker and, and then have a dialogue. So when, I mean, we talked about having emotion and dialogue, but I think you wanna lower the lever from, you know, when the controversial speaker is there, um, when tensions are really high, uh, bring that down a notch, let, let a little bit of time pass, and then bringing people together to say, hey, let, let's talk about this. Of course, you can also do it on the proactive side before a speaker is invited. Um, maybe you're hearing rumblings that somebody wants to start a controversy, and so they're looking to uh, bring a speaker. Why not bring, it, bring um, that group together with one that would really um, feel marginalized by a speaker and really let them hear from one another? What's Why might that be very hurtful? Why might, you know, having this speaker be somewhat, um, you know, helpful from, at least from the group that that believes that to be so, and um, and letting them really talk to one another and, and hear, and then it could change what ends
1: up happening. I think that there's some understanding among some people that a call to dialogue can sometimes um, be associated with this idea of maintaining civility. Mm -hmm. And I think for some people that feels like an attempt to uh, for some people that may feel like an attempt to silence their urgency around um, their political beliefs or their lived situations. And I'm curious, especially in an election context where a call for civility might rub people the wrong way, um, how you still encourage dialogue or, you know, what you make of that kind of tension. Do you know what I mean?
3: I do. Um, You know, I think for me, dialogue is about democratic engagement. Um, because there are voices that have been left out of um, our public sphere. And so bringing them to the table, the dialogue table, and really having their voices be equal uh, to those that are often louder is really, really important as far as our democracy. At the same time, I completely understand the critique about, oh, but we have to do this in a way that's you know, very respectable. And I even talked about creating guidelines at the beginning. And, and I know some people believe that creating those guidelines can tamp down. Um, but the point of the guidelines is to um, build a sense of what, how we're gonna talk together even when controversy happens. So it's not to tamp down the conflict, But it's a way to say, okay, how are we going to handle conflict productively when it happens? So I think that's a little bit of a difference from what I think of when I when I think of civility, which is, um, you know, make sure everybody feels okay And and yes, that they're heard. But but also I I think it it often um, signals that we don't want to rock the boat. And dialogue really is, is about rocking the boat because it's about de-centering um, power or decentering the dominant narrative so that those voices that don't get heard actually get heard. And at the same time, those voices that usually are the, the prominent ones, they're also there. They also uh, have an opportunity to be heard, but they're heard at the same level. Rather than kind of squashing um, voices that are typically marginalized, and so it's a, a it's a it's a rebalancing of um, the the voices around the table, so that yeah, so that the power sort of is uncovered, or those dominant voices are uncovered and made visible, and um, and that's a really important and kind of different thing than having a a civil conversation. For faculty who
1: are anticipating a couple of potentially very tense semesters before and after the election, um, what would you encourage they, they do in their classrooms or on campus um, to, as you said, be able to dig in, but in a productive way. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's you know attend a session um, that your center offers. But are there some notes they can put in the syllabus? Are there some ground rules they can lay in class? Yep. What might you recommend for a faculty member? I, I definitely both of those
3: things. So I think some syllabus language about the expectations of how we're going to interact um, in a discussion space. I think it's hard to have a true dialogue in a sort of regular class, but I think you can set up um, dialogic techniques, use, using dialogic techniques to, to get the, the student group to be as dialogue-ish as possible. Um, absolutely using guidelines um, for discussion in classroom. So using I statements. Um, um, Uh, Coming to, coming, doing your own best, and then expecting that from others as well. Um, I would say, again, expect a lack of closure. Um, Things like uh, making space and taking space. So stepping into a space if you're kind of quiet and really testing those waters. And then if you're an extrovert... Stepping back a little bit and allowing for other, you know, kind of basic communication practices. Um, uh, and then confidentiality in the space, too. You know, you're not tweeting about what's happening here in our room, but that you, you take the learning out, but you don't take the stories that people are sharing out of the space. And so I think that's really important. So setting the stage, um, both through guidelines, but then that relationship building, Because how are you going to expect students to talk about controversial issues in your class if they don't even know the name of the person sitting next to them? And I know that can be really tough for faculty members because they don't want to take the time um, away from their content for this relationship building. But it really pays dividends later in the class when students um, feel like they can give the benefit of the doubt to somebody else because they have some kind of connection with them. So, um, you know, early on, some daily icebreakers that help people get to know people's names, but also a little bit about the people in the room. And these are, of course, I'm talking about smaller classrooms, so it's a little bit more difficult if you're talking about a lecture hall or something like that. But yeah, absolutely, the whole, the setup um, at the beginning of the semester is really crucial for then what happens later in the semester when you really want them to dig into a topic and um, and then, you know, practicing it with, before you want them to talk about uh, climate change, can you have them earlier in the semester talk a little bit about, you know, has their, what does their family do around conservation efforts or some, you know, something that just d- dabs their toe in without being really controversial, and then later you're going to have the more, the deeper discussion. So uh, yeah, and, and knowing that emotion is going to be present, I think is really crucial. Um, I've done a fair bit of faculty development as well, and I think the greatest fear that I hear from faculty is what do I do when, you know, someone... Yells, or there's clearly anger and frustration in the room, or someone cries, or something like that. And so, equipping faculty with the skills to manage emotion in the classroom, because most faculty are not trained in that way
1: and don't know what to do um, when it happens. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. If you want to learn more about the Difficult Dialogues National Resources Center, They're hosting a conference for university leaders at the end of October at Princeton University, and we'll put the info on our show page. This episode was reported by me, Becky Koenig, and edited and produced by Jeff Young. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe wherever you listen, and please tell a friend on social media or in person so we can continue to grow our audience. We'll be back next week with more dialogues on the future of education. Thanks for listening.